Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk in our little series of chats with uh, people from the other side of the Atlantic, um, from the USA. And uh, uh, James, who have we got today? Well, today we've got Marty Morgan, who I'm very excited about having on the podcast because uh, Marty is uh, is a real expert in kind of weaponry, Normandy, the Battle of the Bulge, all sorts of things. And he's another of these fellows who's a historian who's sort of coming at this whole subject from a slightly different angle, not the traditional kind of sort of sitting there with his corduroy jacket on and his wainscoted study kind of pouring over books. Of course, you do all that as well, Marty, I know. But but you're kind of you're, you're much more of a sort of practical fellow who likes to get out and kind of do the experiential stuff and all the rest of it. Um, you're a consultant on on um, Call of Duty. You've, you've consulted on Band of brothers and the pacific and various other sort of things and you've led battlefield tours so you know what you're about and um uh, and it's just it's very good to have you on the show well thank you i appreciate the invitation to be with you (laughs) now marty what's your james and i've talked about this before on the podcast the thing that got us interested in this subject and and that that uh, it, it has led to this podcast and us seeking out a fellow uh the afflicted, we call them. Um, other people afflicted with this passion for this subject. What's your sort of um, 
What's your origin story, as it were? How did you get into the subject? Well, I was lucky enough to have been raised by a United States Army officer. Um, my father was in the Army from 59 until 81. And so I was, I was born in 69 and raised around the environment of the U.S. Army, born on a, and raised on a U.S. Army post where my father's men were all sort of surrogate uncles. That was in addition to the fact that my grandfather was in the Second World War and my uncle was in the Second World War and the two of them together got me very interested. I was, in other words, in my childhood around nothing but people who had either fought the Second World War or were currently in uniform and serving the American military. In addition to that, um, I was raised in the 70s and you guys yeah. might remember it was just nothing but awesome movie after awesome movie about the Second World War. <laughs> so what's your all-time favorite? Wow, I really like Bridge Too Far a lot. Ah! Yes. Yeah, 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 I, yeah, I can't you. get enough of them. Yeah. This, this is just going better and better, to be honest, Martin. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, so you, that should know the right that, that you, you should know that Al has, I, I think obsession is the right word, with, with Market Garden. Yeah, oh, really? absolutely. My, well, my father was an airborne soldier from the late 50s uh, uh, and then a, as a reservist, a TA guy until the early 80s. Um, he, all of, all, of the, all of the cadre of officers he sort of served with to start with in the, late, in the mid to late 50s had been at Arnhem, were guys wow. who were at Arnhem. He, he, knew, he knew Mackay, you know, because uh, he was a sapper, he was an engineer. So he knew uh, Mac Eric Mackay, who was at, the, who was at the, fought in the schoolhouse on the bridge. Right. He knew, uh, uh, knew all those characters. And we would, go, we would go to Normandy for our summer holidays. And he took me to Arnhem when I was 14. I did a history project about Arnhem for my O-levels, for the, the exams you do when you're 16. That got that got a highest commendation thing when I was a kid. I was so, so but you used to, and you, the but same. you also used to watch a bridge too far with your dad, didn't you? Yes. Well, my dad took me to see it at the cinema, and I remember him. I remember him uh, getting up and uh, fulminating at the leopard tank that's in it. <laughs> the, the, yeah, the tank. tank. <laughs> it's like it's the wrong bloody tank when this tank comes over the when it comes over the bridge. Anyway, so so it's that's that's interesting that and you know of course we had Action Man who's GI Joe. We had. <laughs> Uh, we had airfix models, you know. We, there was a there was a sort of slice of khaki glamour in in British culture in the seventies as well. So it's fa interesting to hear that. That's I mean that's basically identical to me. <laughs> I love it. Mar marvelous. Yeah. <laughs> now, um, you you you. I mean, the the thing that really fascinates me is though that is that you, as well as doing this this uh, the, the, as being an actual historical expert on this, you're bringing it into popular culture because video games. As, a, as an interface for people with the history of the Second World War, a really, it's a really important uh, point of contact, isn't it, between the, a more academic view of things and, the, and then an experiential entertainment idea, isn't it? It's reaching more people than anything I'm ever going to write, anything that Max Hastings is ever going to write, anything that James Holland is ever going to write. It, the video games have more reach capability than anything possible, which is why I think they have replaced world, the, the, the glamorous action movies of the 1970s. And it's interesting because it's almost like you've sat in meetings that I have with the team over where we're constantly exploring the extent to which the game should be informed by actual events and reality. And they, they're, they're, their objective is to make things extremely engaging and extremely dynamic. And 
that doesn't necessarily mean that it's always going to be historically accurate, which is the point at which they um, engage me and use me for a lot of feedback. It's, it's fascinating because you would think that it's just some crusty old person that watched movies in the 70s and read a bunch of books that tells them, no, that's wrong, do this. And it's, uh, it's a far broader interaction than, than just that. And, and I enjoy being a part of it. And I think it's, it's the most productive way to expose a new generation to the history of the Second World War. So, so what what's the kind of stuff you're you're advising them on? I mean, would would you just say, well, that okay, that seems great, but but they would have never done that, or you know, the the the, the I don't know the the winter smock that that German trooper is using is the wrong type, or you know, is, it, is I mean, what, what's it? There's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of stitch counting that goes on, which which does not give me the the greatest reputation for being anything other than a complete nerd, uh, but I'm. <laughs> uh, because I'm calling out things that it's funny because in our world, I'm including the two of you in this world, by the way, in our world, um, there are things that don't seem outrageous or ridiculous to, for example, um, call out the, the late, the most recent Call of Duty release that I was part of was Call of Duty World War II that came out in 2017. And they depicted a main character with an M1928 A1 Thompson submachine gun. And they had him in the Hurricane Forest with the 50 round drum magazine. And when I saw that, I, of course, I had a commission fail. I was like, oh, no, 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 absolutely no use of 50-round drum magazines whatsoever in Northern Europe. And to them, that is an outrageously hilarious thing to see a nerd meltdown like that. <laughs> and to me, I look at them like, why, why could you, what could you possibly say negative to my reaction to that? I felt like my <laughs> reaction was very measured and controlled. And to them, they just thought it was some wild meltdown. Um, so there's a little bit of that going on, stitch counting absurdity. Um, I do work with the weapons team quite a bit. And that is in terms of not just advising them on what weapons are appropriate, but also the team will travel here to Louisiana and we will go out on a piece of property near where I live and uh, conduct actual audio sampling of, of, of the weapons that end up in the game. So when you listen to... Uh, firearms from Call of Duty World War II, they're firearms from my collection or from the collection of my, my dealer. And that, um, I believe, exposes those designers. It's the audio team almost exclusively, but it's exposing them to some realities of World War II firepower that I think inform the way that they approach the game, uh, which I kind of wish everybody could do. I've been leading tours in Normandy for almost 20 years now. And one thing that I am finding is that for the most part, when people come to Normandy and it's a first experience and there are not people who have gotten into recreational shooting or collecting military surplus firearms, that there's an enormous amount of chauvinistic pre-information that's in them that I have to fight against, uh, which is why I suggest- I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah, it's overwhelming. It's, I mean, it's to the point where I end up spending more time talking about um, Saving Private Ryan, which is a movie that's based on things that for the most part did not actually happen. I, I end up spending more time talking about that than things that actually happened. Um, okay, well, it, well, I don't want to completely make you go through that all over again, but what, what yeah. you know, just in two minutes, what is your, what's your beef with the opening scene of Saving Private Ryan? It's a great scene. However, what it does is it leaves the powerful impression that the entirety, the entire breadth, the five-mile width of Omaha yes. Beach was one vicious bloodletting, which it wasn't. Which it wasn't. There were, yeah. There were pockets of intensity. Right. And it, 
And through the pornification of the subject matter, they chose the pocket that provided the greatest possible intensity, which is something that's very motion picture and video game. And I get that. Um, what that does, though, for people that have not spent a, li a lifetime around the subject is that when they arrive and they, for example, stand at Dog Green Sector and they connect that to the opening scene of, of, of Saving Private Ryan, they immediately um, trigger this very interesting thought process. And it is that they immediately become hypercritical of the leadership that chose that as a time and place of battle. And when, right. I, mention, when I mention that, it's they, they turn it into something that I believe is um, a narrative that very powerfully belongs to the post-1975 time period, the post-Vietnam era in American history, where it is fashionable to be disenchanted. It's fashionable to be cynical. It's fashionable to engage. It's a narrative that goes back to the First World War, where we blame it's, the leaders. It's lions led by donkeys, isn't it? Precisely. Lions led by donkeys. We, it, it's, it's, they suddenly shift into gear and immediately go, what idiots decided that Omaha Beach was the place to fight. And I then have to very surgically deconstruct that, that chauvinism and try to go, no, some of the most intelligent people on the planet Earth conceived this battle. And when they conceived this battle, it was with no casual disregard for the lives of the common soldier. They were sensitively aware of the fact that they might lose lives. And they attempted to construct a battle space that would conserve lives to the greatest extent possible. But yeah. I, I, I end up basically fighting this slogging that match with people yes. that where they want to go, the generals were all so stupid. The generals were all so foolish to fight here. And I find it also, was a slaughter. You know, it's bloody Omaha, yeah. isn't it? It's, it's kind of it, it, you're right. It's this perception. It's wholesale slaughter. And when you when you tell people that that in total for Omaha Beach, you know, 842 or whatever it was, allied soldiers lost their lives. Which is a lot, but yeah. most people assume it's kind of 2,000, 3,000. Right, and exactly. And the, I also find that it's very difficult to pull people down off of the ledge of the way that casualty figures get, get listed. Because they're, in their reading, they're used to saying D-Day casualties 10,000. They assume that that means 10,000 killed. And I yeah. very carefully then have to pull them back from that. I also think that the opening scene of Private Ryan has created an entire discourse of its own that I call um, MG42 determinism. And that is, <laughs> and that is, I've named it, I've named the baby. And I call it that because of literally two, two very quick clips in the opening sequence that are shot from over the shoulder of an MG42 gunner who, for reasons that remain completely unknown to me, is completely unprotected by concrete or wood or sandbags. In other words, it's the, the Hollywood created scene is of a gunner firing from the bipod, which is something that's just not done that often, particularly no. in fixed fortifications. He's firing from the bipod and he's just ripping a belt in one big burst directly down the yawning open bow of yeah. Higgins LCPP and killing everybody on board the boat. Because this, this and, machine gun is also incredibly accurate and um, can fire it kind of, you know, God knows how many bullets, you know, 1,500 bullets a, a, a minute. And, and, you know, what hope do our brave young men have against this, this mighty machine? That's precisely it. And I, I find it to be a fascinating thing that, um, that I believe is... In, I'll just go ahead and, you know, let the pony out of the pen here, but I, I believe that it is entirely mythology. Yeah. And one thing that I've attempted to do in basically all of my work, basically everything associated with Normandy is um, I'm doing a lot of revisionist history 
um, revisionist, revisionism can be a very good thing. Most many people yes. believe it's always bad, but it can be an extremely well. well it's a, the revisionism. Thing. When you say you're, you're you're revisionist, it's got a kind of sort of dirty word stigma, hasn't it? But actually, it isn't because it really because does. what what you're actually you know what 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 good revisionism should be is actually asking questions and not accepting a kind of a kind of mythologized truth that doesn't have any truth at all. And and, and you know the Second World War is just full, the, the the narrative of World War Two is just full of those mythologies which have become a kind of truth. It's full of essential non sequiturs in, in lots of yeah. its explanations, isn't it? As you, it, it, it? All sorts of things about the way the Second World War is told. You, you, you demand the question, well, if that's the case, how come that something else happened? If that's the case, why was the result different? Um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, when I went to the Bo- uh, Borgibu Ridge a very long time ago with a, with a veteran of the Goodwood campaign... He said, I've read Max Hastings' book. If if we did such a terrible job, how, how did I ever get up here? How did we get to onto this ridge if we if if apparently we, we, we didn't? You know, uh, 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 and I think so much, so much of this stuff is very hardwired into people. And again, it's a thing we see on it's a thing we see on our Twitter feed where we'll be talking about, about a subject and someone will pop up with a receive with a received wisdom. That you know, um, does, well then that that explains nothing. If that's uh, if that's how you're uh, describing this event, it doesn't explain what actually transpired, or, or if you sort of mean. Yeah, exactly. This is why, um, I, as I've led tours in Normandy for, for almost twenty years now, I've had to present the packages of information to people, the Omaha Beach package, the package related to Utah, the package related to the American airborne drop zone areas. As I've presented those packages, I have attempted to reconcile multiple different narratives into a single narrative. Every tour guide has to do this at some point. And they're they're often conflicting. And as I attempted to reconcile, because I remember the era prior to Saving Private Ryan. I mean, we could maybe call that... um, BSPR before Saving Private Ryan. And the era prior to Saving Private Ryan, there wasn't so much of an infatuation with the slaughter machine, the MG42 machine gun. And people often didn't talk about that. And the and the narrative was more fixed on mortar fire, which, to be honest, is what is creating most of the casualties on Omaha Beach. Yes, yeah, so when you look at the statistics across the whole of the Western battlefield, it's mortar fire, isn't Absolutely. it? Really, Absolutely. It's, it's doing for people. Yeah, it's mortars and artillery that's doing all of the killing. Small arms fires is really when you if, you, if you bounce small arms fire off of the movie narratives, it's surprising how little small arms fire is actually doing. And yeah. I have found that to be the case with Omaha Beach, and I have found it to be an extraordinarily challenging thing to take guests who maybe have done a little bit of reading, but have definitely done a little movie watching, to take them to the dog green sector and make that place make sense to them. It's an extremely Mm. challenging thing. And one of the areas where I struggle the most is over the firepower that was available to the German troops that were defending Omaha, because there is this overwhelming chauvinistic belief that what Steven Spielberg told them is the truth. And I have been working toward that now for Seriously, I've been working toward it now for over a year, and I'm finding very little documentation of relating to MG42s on Omaha Beach. I'm able to document a few things, um, none of which are MG42s, and it's leading me to begin to entertain the possibility that there were none on the beach. 
No, wow, wow. that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, so how many? There's, there's about. I mean, the other thing I think is really interesting is is that you you know you go okay. So how many guns do you think there were there were on you know sort of artillery pieces, anti tank guns, all that kind of stuff, cannons? How many how how many pieces do you think there were? Protecting those bluffs. We'll, we'll, we'll park how many are inside. So it's about 32, I think it is. Uh, you know, uh, of which there are, I think I'm right in saying, two 88 millimeters. Right, There's a that's handful all. of 75s, yeah. and most of them are 50 yeah. millimeters. Ranged mm-hmm. against them are, I think it's 183 90 millimeter or above. Right. You know, and every yeah. time, every and you just, just think about what that means for a machine gunner. So you're on that bluff and you're, okay, you might be in a bunker, you might not be, uh, um, whatever, but you're on that bluff. Uh, let's just assume you're in some kind of casement, you know, some kind of bunker, concrete bunker position. You've got these shells pounding in. They might not be big enough to kind of actually destroy that bunker, but they're certainly going to be big enough to cause you, you know, unbelievable terror. Um, lots of grit and dust is going to be flying around you. What are you going to do at the moment that is flying in? You're going to cower and clutch your head and pray to your mum and pray to right. God. Uh, and and you, what you're not going to be doing is keeping a cool head and firing your machine, your MG42 and calmly, you know, calmly kind of sort of changing, changing over the belts or kind of changing the barrel for the 25th time because it's overheated. I mean... You, you know, I mean, I know there are artillery pieces further inland as well, but but it's still absolutely as nothing compared to the kind of combined firepower that the Allies have got out at sea. I mean, it just isn't. Well, which take which takes you back to your point, Marty, that that, that this is a battle space the Allies have created. To, you know, they've loaded the dice. Is the absolutely. is, the, mm-hmm. is the, the simplest way of looking at it. So so what 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 if there weren't MG forty twos on Omar Beach? What was there? Well, if I could turn your attention to Exhibit A of the material that yes. I submitted previous to this conversation, <laughs> I've turned this into a court proceeding. Um, exhibit A is, I think, interesting because the image shows um, a, a fighting position of WN-66. In yes. The, I guess that's toward the western edge of VZ Red. And it's, it's the only photograph that I'm aware of in existence. And I have published two books that are photo collections of, of Normandy. Um, so I feel like I've spent way too much time looking at photos of Normandy and looking at them very closely. This is the only photo that I'm aware of that depicts an actual German machine gun on Omaha Beach. And what it depicts is the MG-08. This brings, yeah. a, this brings me to an, a great opportunity to mention something that I think has contributed to the mythology of, um, associated with this, in that there is a, a, there is a habit among Americans, as well as among British troops during the war, to, uh, to reductionize things. Americans are extremely bad about every single tank is a tiger. I know you're familiar with this and you've heard yeah, it yeah, a million yeah. times. Every tank's a tiger. And my reaction to that is usually it's actually not. Um, one thing that I'm aware of is that um, American to Americans, every machine gun's an MG42. And I'm yeah. finding too that in original documentation uh, for British troops, especially, well, not just <clears throat> third division, but 50th division, Every machine gun's a Spandau. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, I, there are several, and you know, when, here's a great example. Um, the, the action, I think you're probably familiar with that recording that Hollis does after the fact where he's describing the VC action at Montfleury Battery and the VC, and, and then the further actions at Crepon. Um, Hollis over and over again refers to a Spandau. And one thing that I have seen over, over and over again are British troops that are referring to the machine guns as Spandaus. And then I go back and I look and I can't 
Spandau is a specific reference to that I think dating back to BEF nineteen fourteen. Yeah, every no, it's, where it's, everything yeah, was. Yeah, nineteen fourteen. Yeah, yeah. Every gun was a Spandau. Um, where they're all MGOH, and I think that that's just something that carried over into the Second World War. And yeah, it just means times, a machine gun, doesn't it? That's really all it means. It's just a general term of art. And there have been times I've attempted to reconcile British troops referring to a Spandau with what weapon was actually there. And uh, there have been times where it confirmed that it was an MGU-8, but then there have been times that it was probably something else and not an MGU-8. And Americans get confused about it too. And the Germans don't help the situation with, if I could turn your attention to Exhibit B. Yes. Exhibit, yes. Exhibit so what, so B, just to go back to Exhibit A, what, what is okay. Exhibit A? Exhibit A is a photo from WN66 of a German MG08 Spandau. That's an MG08, right. And my experience with both of those particular weapons is that the MG42 in many ways is the worst choice for a fixed beach defensive position. And that the MG08 is by far the best choice because right. I took um, in temperatures that are above, there's a weird magic threshold around 60 degrees Fahrenheit where um, an air-cooled MG42 is constantly overheating. We, on a, on a rare day where Southern Louisiana was below freezing, we took out the MG42 and burned, I think, about 500 rounds through it in a day. It was 27 degrees Fahrenheit, so it was just below freezing. And we found at that temperature, the gun just ate everything up, and we didn't really have to operate it mindful of overheating. We really didn't have to worry about it when it was below freezing. If you get above freezing, and then the closer you get to this threshold temperature of 60 degrees Fahrenheit, the more mindful you have to get once you get past 60 degrees Fahrenheit, you really are kind of hobbled by how quickly that firearm overheats itself. We've got to take a short break right now. Um, we'll be back with Marty Morgan in a minute. Welcome back to We Have Ways. We're talking to Marty Morgan, music to James Holland's ears, I think. So this is so the MGI8 to water cooled gun. It's I mean it's like a like you know the, it's a like British Maxim gun, isn't it? Or the it's, Vickers it's, gun, it's, you know. It's a Maxim yeah. design, so yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. So, so that's ideal for a fixed position, isn't it? Because that's not going to overheat. You've got it all under control, haven't you? Absolutely, in every way. And but Marty, do you also do you also buy into the argument that we're, you know because what because obviously you know we're in in a in a in an ambush or something like that, having this colossal rate of fire is is kind of ha quite handy. But but if you're just trying to mow down people coming off landing craft, that solid kind of 500, 600 round a minute when it gets... I mean, that that's a kind of a, a more effective rate of firepower, isn't it? Because you can, you know, it's better to kill kind of 20 people with one bullet than one person with 20. In absolutely every way, you're correct. The, the slower cyclic rate of fire allows um, uh, the dispersal of shots downrange when you deliver fire at a longer range the dispersal of rounds is more compact with the slower cyclic rate of fire. Then you also have an uninterrupted volume of fire, especially when you're dealing with water-cooled weapons. And mm. this is why I argue that the MG42 is in so many ways the wrong choice. What I struggle against there is there's a personal account that greatly complicates my belief and my arguments here. And that's by a, a German gunner who, well, he wasn't even a gunner actor. Actually, there was a German. This is Heinz Savelo. 
Hans Everlo, this the so-called beast of Omaha. And I use quotes there and a, a deliberately sarcastic tone of voice because in every way his account is exaggerated. There are also, I, in the revisionist in examining the Heinz Severlo personal account, and also in reading his book, the revisionistly minded historian will quickly see a lot of problems with the account. And overwhelmingly, I'm, I met him once. I didn't get to spend much time around him. He was sort of an un, unapproachable figure. Um, but I did spend a lot of time around someone that was in the same complex. It was in the WN 62 complex with him named Franz Gockel. I spent an enormous yes. amount of time around Gockel. And he had an 08, got, didn't he? He didn't. He actually had, if you can turn to Exhibit B, he was armed and fighting with the Polish WZ-30 machine gun. Um, wow. So the photo okay. that, yeah, the, the photo you're seeing there is from Omaha Beach. Gockel's not in the photograph, but this is supposedly a group of men posing at a, at a house near the WN62 complex. Because I wrote about Gockel. I wrote about Gockel in my Normandy book, and I think I said he had an 08. So I need to go. Well, you know, next time there's a reprint, I need to get onto that and and get it changed. Well, you know, the fascinating thing is that it is it would be extremely easy to mix the two up because they're right. both water cooled machine guns. The Polish WZ-30 is a licensed copy of the Browning M1917 machine gun. And the John Browning design differs from the Maxim design, basically just in internal components, but they're both water-cooled machine guns so that they would present a very similar appearance. And Gockel specifically told me, Polish machine gun. I flipped through photos because at that point, it could be one of two things. Um, because the Polish also made use of their, their weapon that was called designated WZ-28, which is the Polish Browning automatic rifle. And right. so I showed, I showed Gockel a photo of the Polish WZ-28 BAR, and he said, nope. I showed him the WZ-30. He said, that's the gun. Huh. Uh, and that's kind of a high authority. And it, to, me, to me, makes sense, and it seems so believable. It's such the absolutely appropriate firearm Yes, yeah, so uh, but we also know that the 352nd and the, what is it, the 914th, I can't remember off the top of my head, I think it was the two, the two infantry units that were there at the right. time. Yeah. I mean, you know, we know that they're really, really under-equipped. They're not properly equipped. They're not properly equipped with uniforms. They're not properly equipped with, with weaponry. They're not properly equipped with anything. So at this stage of the war, they're not going to be all equipped with blisteringly shiny, brand-new MG42s. It's going to be a hodgepodge of whatever they can get their hands on. Well, and, e and even then, as Marty's pointed out, the, the, the MG42 is the wrong weapon in this scenario. You need a, a water-cooled gun with a steady rate of fire and, and so on. So and they've James, actually got the, they've got the right piece of ordnance. They did. And a, a fascinating detail here is that it's a foreign weapon. And James yeah. used the word hodgepodge, and I could not conceive of a better word to describe <laughs> the firepower arming German military forces in Normandy. I, I also find that when I take tours there to people that have not read deeply into the subject and devoted their lives to it like a complete nerd, I'm finding that they have this, 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 uh, this pre-chauvinism that everyone that fought in German uniforms was German in Normandy. I'm revealing yes. to them for the first time often that the Germans that were fighting in Normandy were from many different countries and they were mm. fighting with weapons from many different countries. And that's why if you get a chance to have a look at exhibit C, so that's just immediately west yeah, yeah. of, of Pointe yeah, de Yeah, you know yep. it. And yep. this is in the center of downtown Grand Comp and it's showing a French model 1931 Raibel yes. machine gun. Yes. 
which was designed for fortresses and designed for ar armored vehicles and could be used as an infantry weapon on occasion. I wanted to provide that because when I examine specifically the units that were fighting on the beaches, I find no evidence, no photographic evidence, certainly, to show MG42s. What I find is exactly what you said, a hodgepodge. I find yeah. French yeah. model 1931. And it, and it makes sense that they, they, they've had these French machine guns since 1940. I mean, right. you know, it's the same as, as the French tanks that they've got coming across, you know, at Lafayette. I mean, right. you know, the, 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 there's one, I think there's one Panzer III leading the charge, but the, the rest of the tanks yeah. are, are, are French. They're Samoas, aren't they? Or Renaults or something? I can't remember now. It's, it's, it's two, uh, two Hotchkiss and one Renault. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. you know, and... and I, I, you may be familiar with this book called Small Arms, Artillery and Special Weapons of the Third Reich, an encyclopedic survey. And, and it's just, it's just, it's, it's, I mean, it's a geek book, but it's a fantastically good geek book. And it's got every sort of um, weapon that the, you know, small arm and artillery piece that the Germans ever use. And 90% and of those listed in the book are, are foreign. I love to make They've got Bren guns in here. I mean, absolutely. You know. Because who would blame them? If I could use a Bren gun, you're damn right I'd do it. <laughs> finest light machine gun of the Second World War. Anyway, the... Really? Um, oh, hold on, hold on a minute. We can't just let you get away with saying that just lightly. <laughs> uh, why, Marty, do you think the Bren gun was the finest light machine gun of the Second World War? In terms of reliability and accuracy, and then the fact that the Bren had the rapid change barrel feature, those all combined... Why is that good? Is that good rather than belt-fed? I think I, th I think ra I think rapid change um, barrel feature. Um, it it is effectively an insurance policy that you're capable of a higher rate of. Oh, the barrel. Power. Sorry, you said the rapid barrel, barrel. Yeah, yeah, rapid rapid barrel change. I also find that magazine changes are much more quickly executed than belt changes. Um, and then also, whenever you whenever you have a light machine gun equipped that's feeding from a belt you're suddenly adding something that's quite a bit more cumbersome and difficult to change and requires your assistant gunner who has to be attached at the hip to the main gunner. The Browning automatic rifle and the Bren gun both allow an automatic weapon to advance with an attacking echelon, which is an, a capability that is absolutely used over and over and over again. And it's, it provides a, a great versatility in combat. The fact that the, the, the Bren gun provides a great advantage over the American BAR because the Bren gun, first of all, has a better bipod, a better sighting system, and you can change the barrels so that you can deliver a greater volume of sustained fire with Bren that you just can't with the BAR. I love the BAR, but it's just the, the World War II version, is, it's, it's just not great. The, the, the French version of the BAR, which is their Model 2429, is a better version. The Belgian version of the BAR is better. The Polish version of the BAR is better than the American version. Um, oh, but if I had, to, but what about yeah. but what about the M nineteen nineteen the the thirty caliber? I mean, that's a, I, I fired that one and I, I was really impressed with just how completely solid it was. It was just, oh yeah. You know. I mean, it's a it's a Browning machine gun, so it's effectively infallible. The only problem I believe <laughs> is, yeah, big Browning fan here. Um, <laughs> but the only problem with the nineteen nineteen is the early version is not a firearm that can advance with an attacking echelon, which is why there's, um, there's so much interesting ingenuity that goes into attempting to develop um, um, an individually portable version of the 1919. We do that. Right. 
Marines in the Pacific begin modifying the aircraft 30 caliber Browning machine gun, which is almost a completely different weapon, although it uses the same operating system. They begin modifying it with BAR bipods, with M1 Garand butt stocks, um, with, by attaching 100 round belts. They're using aircraft guns as ground weapons with higher cyclic rates of fire. And it's because there was a desperation to have a belt-fed machine gun that can move forward with the attacking echelon, it can be brought into action quickly. And those are things that you can't do with a 1919 A4. Now the 1919 A6, which we're using for the first time in combat in the Netherlands with Operation Market Garden, that is a dramatic improvement over the situation, but the firearm is on the heavy side. The firearm is, it's a little bit on the long side as well. And when it comes down to it, I would rather have a Bren than the 1919 A6. There you go. Okay, yeah. so that was a little, that was a little <laughs> in praise of the Bren inter, inter, interruption to the main yeah. theme, which is German machine guns <laughs> in Normandy. You mentioned that book and it's, it's great because I have so many times in the past been challenged to defend why it's important to learn all of these hyper-technical facts. And I believe that there's an importance to it because when you embrace a book like that, something that the average reader is not going to consume, um, it reveals something that's extremely important. And I think it's extremely important for the Normandy battle, specifically for Omaha Beach, because when you read that book, it brings you into a greater understanding of the extent to which the, the Third Reich was a kleptocratic state that could only supply its, the, the size of, ex, of its expanded military with things that it stole from everybody. And it's not a matter of the Germans chose to use their captured foreign weapons. The Germans had to use their captured foreign weapons because German ordnance industries were insufficient to produce the total number of rifles, pistols, submachine guns, and machine guns that they needed to take on the world like they did. Yeah. And I, I love it specifically when it relates to the Normandy battle, because in Normandy, the deeper I read into the subject, the more I find there's lots and lots of foreign guns there. And I think that's important because I find that when I take bus tours to Normandy, back before 2020, um, but when I take bus tours to Normandy and we get out and we start to talk about it, everyone assumes that every German had a K98, an MG42 or an MP4. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they also say, say, yeah, okay, so we, we know that the kind of the, the, the infantry division, the 914th or 16th or whatever it was, w was not yeah. much cop, uh, um, was not much cop. But then, but just at the last minute and, and you know, without the Americans realizing the elite 352nd infantry division. Came, yeah. and, and you sort of go, you go, yeah, I'm sorry, on, on absolutely no spectrum could you call the 352nd elite? Right. I mean, right. You, you just couldn't under any circumstances. And, and but, but this is all part of the myth, isn't it? Of these sort of square jaw Germans, these automatons with right. their MG42s right. and their eliteness and their superior training and their superior uh, um, tactical flair and all the rest of it. And all of it. And it's just it's just absolute bollocks. It really is. I mean, it's a it's a it's a pa they're a paper tiger. Everyone likes to believe in this absurdity that the, the men, I, I always use this construction, it's a little awkward, but I always say the men in German uniforms in Normandy, because the men in German uniforms in Normandy, as you know, were <laughs> only about 50% German. Yes. There's an enormous number, there are an enormous number of foreigners in the German military, not to, not the least the thing that I often mention at Point de Hoc that blows people's minds, as I mentioned the number of Italians that are depicted in the photographic um, evidence of the Point de Hoc battle. And it's Italians who were probably there as laborers, but there's some 
battalions that are doing some fighting. There's this, there's this wide diversity among the men in German uniforms in Normandy. They're speaking multiple different foreign languages. German is probably spoken more than anything. And they're fighting with, with weapons that the Third Reich has captured from all over Europe. And they're some of the finest weapons in, in the entire world at the time. And it's not just rifles, pistols, submachine guns. It's, it's artillery pieces as well. If I could flip forward, like, just to flip through the exhibits quickly, you're seeing Exhibit yes. C, the French-made Model 1931 Ribel yeah. uh, machine gun. If you go to, 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 go to D, uh, Exhibit E, yeah. So that's a Hotchkiss. Hotchkiss Model 1914s. And and why are the Germans using it? Because it's a damn good machine gun. That's why the Germans are using it. Um, And then I threw in in Exhibit H, and I love the photo. You're seeing glider pilots, and I think it's mainly glider pilots, and some wounded being evacuated from Utah. And down in the corner where I have a yellow arrow, you're seeing a couple of rifles leaned up against the gunnel of the landing craft. One of them's a K-98, one of them is a Soviet SVT-40 SVT semi-automatic rifle. And, yeah, yeah, look at that. Yeah, and in, the, and in the area where the German 709th Static Division was fighting, there are a very large number of captured Soviet small arms. And it's not, here's one piece of evidence. Um, I have a bunch of documentary evidence that's showing the, that there were PPSH-41 submachine guns being used by the men in German uniforms in the area of the 709th Division. Yeah. yeah. I use that all the time, and I think it's, I think it's so informative because of this, this weird um, preconception that I find that, that the average enthusiast brings into a visit to Normandy. When they make the pilgrimage, they get there, they imagine that they're all square-jawed Aryans that are all fighting with the finest weapons that in, on the planet Earth. That's another... No, no, the best trained army in the world and all this yeah. kind of stuff. But, but Marty, I think a part, a part of that is also is because y- y- a lot of this comes from, from memoirs and oral history programs and all the rest of it, where you know they talk about these crowds with their MG42s or their, their Spandals or whatever, and, and they're all these Germans. And, you know, it, it's kind of, you know, then there's Hollywood, you add that in as well, obviously. And, but, but also for, for, the, for the guys that were there, that sort of, it's almost kind of sort of a validation of their effort and the losses that they clearly did experience. Right. Uh, you know, you, you, you don't want to describe that, that you came up against a bunch of sort of half-wit kind of guys from, from kind of Latvia and, and the Czech Republic, who, you know, Czechoslovakia, yeah. who had been kind of sort of forced into fighting with, with, with crappy weapons that they didn't like and all the rest of it. I mean, because that's, that's not part of the kind of the story. So you kind of, you know, in the telling... You're kind of sort of going to big up your own experience, and that's not casting any kind of aspersions on on the memory of of, of these veterans, or yeah. casting any aspersions against their bravery and courage for what they're doing. Because clearly, you know, it takes nuts, you know, balls of steel to kind of do what they're doing. But that is where a lot of that comes from, and it's it's you know what what we all know is that it doesn't matter that they've got foreign machine guns. It doesn't matter that that. That they are they're in German uniforms rather than all German and square jawed and amazing with amazing tactical flair. It doesn't matter here and there because that is still a hell of an opposition. I mean, you know, right. that is still a very very dangerous environment in which you're kind of being flung into, uh, fraught with risk and fraught with the kind of possibilities that you would be maimed forevermore if not dead. So it's still it it but but it is up to historians to tell the correct version, the correct story. 
That it is, because otherwise you take away from this impression that the Third Reich was broader and more powerful than it actually was. That's why I love to, uh, in the area around Utah Beach, I love to talk about the 795th Georgian Battalion and discuss this process of mongrelization within the German military that begins and it becomes multilingual and multinational very quickly as it takes on broader and broader objectives that are beyond the capabilities of the Reich itself. Well, well, and, and, and serving as a sort of um, uh, ironic riposte to, to its aims as well, you know, that, that, that you end up with a multicultural, multilingual army fighting the cause of a monocultural, <laughs> monolingual master race. So, so you know, imme- I- I- immediately proving the impossibility of its aim, it's got to resort to a thing that is anath- anathema to itself. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. it, uh, which is, which is, you know, Germany by the end of the war, there are more, there are, there are more foreign people in Germany, more languages being spoken on the street in Hamburg, for instance, than there have ever been in all of German history, yeah. you know, in the service of this idea of a monoculture. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, uh, the, 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 so often in history, ironies pop up and abound, but they really, they're, they're, there's a thicket <laughs> of ironies surrounding the, the, the history of the of the Third Reich. I mean, you, you have to slash your way through them. I mean, James, your, your point, though, I mean, after all, a bullet coming at you, it doesn't really matter if it's come out of a stolen Soviet submachine gun or an MP40, does it? I mean, it... Yeah. it, it a bullet's a bullet. It, it's, if it's going to kill you, it's it, kill a bullet's you, yeah. a bullet in this situation. Yeah. Um, uh, so, I mean, the, 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 I think the other part of the saving... To come back to the saving program, I think, because I think this is a very interesting thing. That This is the sort of, lots of people's entry point to the story of Normandy. It's the other thing I think is really interesting, and I think this comes from the longest day as much as it does from anything else, which I suppose is your pre-Private Ryan mm-hmm. is the longest day, is the people's, people's take on D-Day. And it's interesting that, in fact, in that film, the British feature majorly, whereas in Saving Private Ryan, you've the one conversation about Montgomery. <laughs> Marnie's overrated, says Ted yeah. Danson from Cheers. And you think, and you think, what are you on about? Like, as if you'd have been having that conversation anyway. But, 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 but the, 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 the Normandy campaign begins and ends with D-Day for a lot of people in their imagination and in their understanding of of the battle in Northwest Europe, that there's this one big, and it's a, a lot of the way, a lot of that comes to us the way that we commemorate it. We make an enormous fuss of D-Day. We don't talk about anything beyond that, really, in this country. People don't know there was a battle of Normandy. They don't know about, you know, the, about fillets, about the, about the Cobra, about the breakouts and all that stuff. They're, not, they're just not registering for people. And after all, we've talked about this on the podcast a lot, is that, that whatever happens on Omaha and whatever happens on Utah, it's what then happens in land that's the the where the where where the casualties are really taken and the, and the you know the the guys get off Utah without too much trouble. But yeah, then the things fourth go infantry. Very, we talked about that, didn't fourth we? Fourth infantry that, 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 things go very nasty for the fourth within infantry. two weeks they're, they're kind they're of hundred percent casualties, you yeah. know, uh, uh, or through rate at least turnover. So I mean. I, I, that, is that a thing that you have to deal with when you're doing your battlefield tours? Are people astonished there's even anything after after D-Day? Absolutely. I mean, for me to get them past June 6th is, a, is almost an impossibility. I am really pushing hard because um, Lafayette was three chapters in my first book, and I kind of love Lafayette, the Lafayette battle, and I ask too much to get them to stay with me through June 9th. It's asking too much. <laughs> and I have, been in, I have been involved in hundreds of television shows during the last 20 years, and I've pitched a bunch of them. And I actually pitched a show that, I, that we titled The Days After D-Day. 
that yeah. was intended to bring attention to the time period post June 6th. And what did the producers do? They talked about the boys from Bedford. 45 minutes of a one hour show was talking about Omaha Beach, boys from Bedford, and things that happened on June 6th. And it's, there's, as you have already mentioned, James, there's this overwhelming emphasis on June 6th alone to the point where we don't pay attention to the other 99 days of the 100 days of the Normandy campaign. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I, I sneak it in sometimes because in recent years I've shifted over to the groups. We, just because of competition for hotel space, we, we were staying um, at Barneville Carteret on the west coast of the peninsula. And so that would necessarily require us to go as we pat as the as the bus left the main D-Day commemorative area and we moved toward the west coast. We would drive through places like uh, Saint-Sauveur-le-Vicomte and we would go through um, areas around like Nehu and toward Montcastre. And I would begin talking about these battles that occurred after the 6th. And I would watch people on the bus get comfortable and fall asleep. <laughs> well, I've got to say, Marty, next uh, April, assuming we're able to do it, I'm, I'm, I'm doing my one annual tour to Normandy. Um, and, and I said, I'll only do this if I could do the whole Normandy campaign and not just D-Day. So we're actually starting in the UK. We're doing a bit of kind of sort of, you know, pre-invasion stuff. Uh, and then we're going to, yeah, we're, of course, we're going to do the beaches and all that kind of crap. But, but, but. We, we we end up at Montormel, you know, we, we end up at the, you know, we do, we, you know, we're, we're doing sort of, you know, Lambert Sadiv and uh, the Falaise Gap and Mortain and, you know, and we go over and do Cobra and, and, and Blue Coat. You know, Blue Coat is such a wow. fantastic operation. It's so interesting. Absolutely. And, and um, you know, we're doing all that stuff. So it's great. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled about it. And, um, and, and I'm glad to say, you know, we've got, we've got some takers on that. So, um Hopefully nice. we can do Very it again. Nice. But, you know, I would love what, to do what, that with you one day. I mean, God, that'd be great. That would be fun. That would be. Like, what I end up doing mostly is, like, the bus tour, which is a little bit of a cattle call. Um, the bus tour cattle call is emphasis on the beachhead. I'm really – it's really – what they've turned into in in the recent era is you got to do the beachhead stuff, and then they want you to slip in some Band of Brothers. I'm – my first book was about the 507th Parachute Infantry, so I really enjoy talking about the 82nd Airborne Division drop zone areas. And so I slide that in. People, they, I watch their interest begin to drop. As soon as I stop talking about beaches and Band of Brothers, their interest level starts to drop. It then becomes incumbent on me to be dynamic and interesting, which I'm not. So big challenge there. <laughs> but what happens is there's, there's, there are typically dedicated people on the bus that then circle back to me after the fact. And we go for what I then call the master's degree course or the advanced course. And we come back and we'll end up at saint lambert sodive and Montonel. And we'll talk about the things that, that matter the most, I think, in Normandy. And we'll talk about, we'll, like, uh, we'll, we'll talk about um, breakout. I rarely get to do it, and I've not been able to do it at all in 2020. But for a, a small select audience they're interested in consuming more information yeah. about it for the broader audience they want to kind of keep it to the main talking points yeah there's this great little place uh um for the breakout from from after cobra uh i think it's called saint denis Lagaste, and uh it, it's it's yeah, it's it's, it. it's the first it's the, suddenly because the germans are in full retreat after 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 cobra they're having to move by daylight and suddenly, for the uh, for for the tactical air force, this is kind of you know, this yeah, is rats in the barrel time. <laughs> yeah. And, and right. Saint Denis Lagasse, so there's, there's this you, you can go out there and it, and it's and it's 
one of the roads leading into it is is just this kind of complete choke point, isn't it? That where it's mm-hmm. toe to bumper kind of horses, carts, pants, you know, panthers, um, stugs, trucks, the, you know, everything of the of everything that can move in the in the German army is is sort of heading southwards, and they just get caught. And it's an absolute slaughter. I mean, it's it's, it's like the kind of road leading up to Montormel, but and and yeah. San Lambert and stuff. But but just a, a couple of weeks earlier, you know, a few weeks earlier, and and it's and it's fascinating there. And and you know, now if you go in, it's just a little kind of sleepy little Normandy village, and you'd never know that. But it's a great place to go and visit because it's it's exactly the place that no one would ever think of going. But actually, is a really important moment in the Normandy campaign because you suddenly see the kind of Germans just starting to kind of implode a bit here and it's all going badly wrong and, and you can see why the Allies are are suddenly why they're dominating now that they've, they've, they've broken this kind of attritional period because of they can use their air power so much more effectively than they could before. It's great. You know, a fun thing is you just mentioned air power. One thing I love talking about when I'm in Normandy with my tour groups is the extent to which the Luftwaffe was actually a meaningful part of the air battle by night for the most part, mm-hmm. because I'm finding that the same people that think every everybody was German, everyone carried an MP40 or an MG42, they believe that core mythology that was taught to them by the longest day, that there was no presence of Luftwaffe whatsoever in the skies above Normandy. And it's fascinating to challenge that with them when I talk about the extent to which the Luftwaffe owned the night sky but didn't really so much own the day sky. And that I, I find that by the time I get done with sort of challenging everything they've ever known, that, that people either, they react in one of two ways. They're, they either react with hostility toward it, like, well, who the hell are you and where'd you get this information? Or they embrace it and want to learn more. Yep, 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 well, yep. Well, we, we could do, I know we could do this forever. Marty, thank you so much for joining us uh, 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 to, to talk. Um, uh we well we're gonna have to have you back aren't we we're gonna have to have marty back aren't we james yeah if, if, he, if he's willing to yeah definitely if he's 100%. willing able and willing but i tell you what i mean you 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 started mentioning kind of you know hardware that you have back home in louisiana and i i'm you know my ears pricked up i'm not gonna lie well next well, time i'm tra- next time in louisiana i might i might you might find an unwanted guest kind of knocking at your door <laughs> Come by. I have access to the private piece of property about an hour north of New Orleans, and I have—I don't have everything, but I almost—I have almost everything. Wow! So, <laughs> wow. You would be welcome. Well, well thank you, amazing. both of you. Thank you so much, Marty. <laughs> thanks for talking to us. Um, uh, thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheerio. Cheerio. Bye now. <laughs>